Hello and welcome to episode number 126 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Tuesday, May 31st, 2011. Thank you so much for joining us. For this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Sally Calhoun. Sally is the owner and executive director of the Picinus Ranch, which is located in Joel, just outside of San Jose, California. Sally, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Uh, thank you, Frank. Well, let's start by having you tell us a little bit uh, about this ranch. Where is it located? And um, tell us a little bit about the ecology of the ranch. Okay. The ranch is located in central California. As you point out, we're only about 60 miles south of San Jose, so we're very close to an urban area. We're kind of an edge community, yet we're at the same time a very rural county, very empty, very agricultural. Um, the ecology of the ranch is pretty typical of central California. We have a Mediterranean climate, which means we get our rain in the winter from October through April, and then we have six months of completely dry weather but it does tend to be cool and foggy and sort of moist in the summer. We figure we're about a six on the brittleness scale, probably somewhere in the middle. Um, we have rolling hills, mostly grasslands and some oak woodlands. We have the San Benito River, which runs right through the middle of the ranch, which is a significant feature, and pretty extensive wetlands that we're in the process of restoring. Okay, now the grasses here are mostly um, not native grasses. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the grasses? Sure. The grasses are 99.999% um, exotic annuals. They came with the Spanish from the Mediterranean climate portion of Europe when they came. So the Spanish came as the managers. They brought the cattle and they brought the grass seed. And they have pretty much taken over the grasslands of this part of California. We have very, very low numbers of uh, native perennial grasses left in this area. In fact, people say that there are none. We've discovered that's not true. There just really aren't very many of them there. Well, another common feature on the landscape here, and actually I should mention for the benefit of our listeners that we are on the Picinus Ranch uh, as we conduct this interview, So, and we have just uh, spent the day out in the field, so a lot of this is fresh in our minds. But um, Another co uh, very prominent feature on the landscape are oak trees, um, and which are a very big issue in California. Can you talk a little bit about oak trees? Uh, why, are they, why are they such a big issue and some of the management concerns around oak trees? Sure. Oak trees are endemic throughout California. I'm not sure how many species there are, but there are quite a few different varieties of oak trees. And they are kind of, they give us that classic California view where you have the golden colored hillside with the dotted oak trees. So they're iconic in terms of California. They're also really important in terms of habitat for a lot of the endemic species uh, here. They've been a huge part of the landscape uh, for as long as we know. And what's happening is that we have very low oak regeneration rates. So our, those beautiful iconic hillsides are dotted with the same trees that were there 100 years ago. Those are the only trees and they're slowly dying and we're not replacing them with younger trees. And it's kind of been a puzzle all over California. There's concern that we will have no oak trees left here a couple hundred years into the future. So a lot of people have been trying to figure out why they're not regenerating and also whether we can figure out how to combine cattle and oak trees together. It's interesting, some people say that cattle are the oak tree's problem, but there are a lot of different theories about why they don't regenerate, and it's not entirely clear that cattle are even a significant factor in that. 
So what we're trying to do here on the Picinus Ranch is determine whether there's some way while grazing cattle that we can get those oak trees to regenerate. And certainly one of the things we're looking at is traditionally in California the cattle have been set stocked, which means they've been in most of the pastures constantly from October through June. So they were here through much of the, through the, through our growing season. And that certainly places a lot of pressure on the oak trees. What we see is that the cattle will browse the oak trees fairly heavily once the annual grasses turn brown, which happens sometime in May. So if you leave cattle here in May and June, and especially through the summer, when people have often had a lot of cows on the landscape, they would summer them on the landscape, that puts a lot of pressure on the oak trees. So one of the things we're trying is to do this short duration, high intensity grazing, and hopefully give those oak trees a chance not to be heavily browsed while they're small and to break out and actually get to be uh, real saplings, not be over browsed and only about a foot tall when they're 20 years old, which is something you commonly see here. So are, do you have any results on that yet or are you still, or is the jury still out on some of those practices? I would say the jury is still out. We have several sites where we're monitoring oak trees. We're starting to see oak seedlings. We found some quite spectacular ones yesterday here uh, under a blue oak tree, but the jury is definitely still out. We do not yet have a wide variety of ages of oak trees. We don't really have healthy saplings. We're starting to see seedlings and we don't know whether we can turn those into saplings and then oak trees. So. Okay. Um, well, this is actually a very interesting site for wildlife as well. Uh, talk a little bit about some of the wildlife that one can find in this part of California and also on the Picinus Ranch. Sure, I would say um, today we've seen several deer. It's obviously a common, we have a lot of bobcats. We had a family that, uh, family of bobcats that lived in our barn for the summer. We got to see little baby bobcats playing all over the ranch headquarters. It's kind of fun. We have uh, foxes, badgers, uh, mountain lions, which is our big predator, um, and then tremendous number of birds and a lot of raptors. We have golden eagles, bald eagles, all kinds of uh, hawks. We figure that we have well over 200 species of birds on the ranch, so that's probably our most stunning uh, wildlife attribute. And we did see a bald eagle out in the field today, so that was um, quite, a, quite a good experience for us. Um, also, there is a species on the ranch of wildlife that is not a native species. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I'm referring to the uh, wild pigs. Oh, the wild pigs, yes. These are, these are uh, were formerly domesticated pigs that were let go at some point in California. You hear stories that they were let go in the Depression when they couldn't feed them and nobody wanted to pay for the bullet. But something happened about 100 or years ago and a tremendous number of these pigs were let loose on the landscape and they have done incredibly well here in California. They're probably our most prolific animal that we have. Um, one thing that, that we are interested in in terms of the pigs is a lot of theory that they tear up the landscape. They are very destructive. They do a lot of rooting around for tubers and they're generally viewed as being very destructive. We kind of view them as perhaps just being moderate disturbers of the soil surface. And there are people in California who point out that, w that one of the major wild animals we used to have here were bears, grizzly bears. California is called the bear, we were the bear republic mm -hmm. back in the 19th century. So we don't have, but we don't have any bears here in Picinus anymore. So there is, it's a possibility that the pigs are sort of filling a niche in the ecosystem that was formerly filled by the bears in terms of the soil disturbance. 
And also the uh, Native Americans used to do a tremendous amount of soil disturbance that's comparable to what pigs do at the edges of wetlands. So we at the Picinus Ridge have a non, uh, sort of, uh, non-conventional view of the pigs. We are still trying to see whether they are not an asset in terms of our ecosystem and our management. We do not kill the pigs. We watch what happens where they disturb the soil. We've noticed that some of our best perennial, native perennial grass patches are in places where there's a lot of pig disturbance. So I would say the, the jury is still out on pigs. We are neutral, and we think there's a possibility that they're really good in terms of the diversity of our ecosystem. So this is something you're obviously observing and exposed to on a day-to-day basis. Why the polarizing effect of this wild animal uh, amongst people who have such uh, different opinions about the effect that, of these pigs? Well, certainly for suburban dwellers, they hate the pigs because they tear up their manicured gardens. One pig in one night can completely destroy your front yard. So there's a real negative in golf courses. They tear up golf courses. There's no question. If you have something planted, a crop planted or a lawn planted, they can indeed be destructive. So I think that's generally why they're viewed as destructive. But it's also true that, for example, at Pinnacles National Monument, they have taken the entire monument and fenced it to keep the pigs out and they have killed every pig inside the fence. Their feeling is that the pigs destroy the native uh, plants. We don't see that at all. We see where the pigs root, that they actually root around, and those native perennial grasses survive completely intact. The annual grasses get torn up, but the, the vast majority of the perennials survive. So I'm not, and I'm not exactly sure from a scientific standpoint why pigs are so negatively viewed. I just reviewed most of the recent literature on pigs and it seems to me that most of the studies show that that pigs may have some slight increase in biodiversity or they may have no effect. I didn't see any studies that indicated that they really destroyed sort of the native ecosystem or reduced its biodiversity. So I'm a little perplexed about the view of pigs. Do you think it has something to do with just the fact that they're an exotic species? Sure. That certainly there are a lot of people who have very negative views of exotic species here, and that may be it. I think it's that and a combination of the, also the way the ground looks when they're done. It looks like things have gotten killed, massacred, mangled, and it's, just, it's a perception that people have. And they're exotic, sure. Mm-hmm. Well, talk a little bit about um, what you produce here on the Picinus Ranch um, and how you apply your management principles in that production process. Okay, we, we have a cattle enterprise, and we actually have two cattle enterprises. We run stalker cattle, so we have a herd of about 2,000 head of cattle that are here from the middle of October until the middle of June during our growing season when our grass is green. We do holistic planned grazing. We have them consolidated into one herd, and that herd moves around the ranch. We're in the process of improving our planned grazing. We would like them to move more frequently. Our paddocks are still very large, so we're dealing with that and trying to come up with a land plan that enables us to reduce the amount of time they're in any paddock. So we're working toward getting to daily moves with our 2,000 head of stalkers. We also have a smaller grass-fed beef herd. These are animals that are born on the ranch or in neighbor, on neighboring ranches that we actually finish on grass here at the Picinus Ranch. So they stay here until they're about 30 months old before we harvest them and we sell the grass-fed beef here locally. So those are our cattle enterprises and are integrally tied with holistic planned grazing. Well, you mentioned your grass-finished beef and in the past you and I have talked about 
the difficulties involved in direct marketing uh, some of the some of the products of that the steaks and the ground beef and the and the sausages and everything else um, tell us a little bit about some of the challenges in getting a product to market uh, directly from the farm to the consumer sure we we've been working on this now for probably six or seven years some of the challenges we've some of the things we've tried we have marketed through farmers markets which is a very difficult process to go through with a frozen meat product it's hard to display it well it's hard to keep it in good shape when you take it to the market and bring it back so we actually have stopped going to farmers markets that's probably I view that as a good way to meet people like for the first year or so when, once you have a good product you can go out and meet people but it's really a hard way in the long run to make enough money to do that is, is very difficult uh, the way we, we have three distribution channels at the moment that seem to be working for us. One is we just market directly to people who come to the ranch website or to people we know. And uh, the difficulty there is actually delivery. Most of our customers live in the, near San Jose, so about 60 miles away. We make sure that we deliver only when we're already driving back and forth and they actually pick up uh, on my porch or uh, another employee's porch. So we've truly tried to minimize the carbon footprint and still get the meat directly to consumers. The other two ways we market are through a CSA. We have a local CSA. She buys all of the produce locally, but has a website where people can order specialty items to add on to their order. So they don't have to buy a certain amount of beef in advance. Each week they can say, give me a pound of ground beef, and it, it appears with their vegetables. And that's actually our best marketing channel. The cool thing about those people is that they actually know how to cook. Too often you would go at the farmer's market, and somebody comes and picks up a roast and looks blankly at you and says, what would I do with this? And it's, that's just hard to teach people how to cook. So the people who sign up for the CSA know how to cook. And they'll, so they'll buy all the cuts, which is really a help for a grass-fed beef producer because we need to sell that whole animal, not just the steaks and the ground beef. So they'll buy the London broils and the oxtails and, and really all the parts of the animal. We also sell through a local market in Santa Cruz that sells only local food. And he's, he's a good distribution channel too. Well, let's go back and revisit this issue of perennial grasses and annual grasses. This is something that you have taken a keen interest in. Um, tell us a little bit about your interest in perennial grasses, what that stems from, and how that has kind of driven you to look at different, um, to, to try to see what is happening with those perennial grasses on the landscape. Okay. Well, I moved to California about 34 years ago, and I don't really understand why, but became interested in this whole idea that California used to be populated with these native perennial grasses, and then they were gone, just gone. And I became interested in them and have been sort of, you know, reading the research and, and following that. And I actually ended up landscaping my garden my, my, at my home about 30 years ago. I started planting native perennial grasses. So I've been growing them in my garden and I would go out every year and I would chop them down so that they could regrow and I understood that if they you know, uh, didn't get chopped down they would die in the middle. So I had a good bit of familiarity with how you grow perennial grasses when I bought the ranch. And one of my goals on buying the ranch, no matter how crazy it sounded, was to see if there was a way on a large scale to repopulate it with native perennial grasses. It was just one of the things I wanted to do. And that goal, in fact, is one of the reasons that we ended up not leasing the ranch to a cattle guy. After I talked to a number of cattle guys, they didn't really share my interest in California perennial grasses, which was perfectly reasonable on their part. But I realized that if we were going to see if there was any progress to be made, we were going to need to manage the cattle ourselves. 
And then when I was introduced to holistic management, it seemed obvious to me that the way you look at the life cycle of perennial grasses and the interaction between the cattle and the perennial grasses made sense just because of what I'd done in my yard. So the whole thing resonated with me on that level. And that sort of started our adventure to see if by the way you manage your cattle you can affect the, the California native perennial grasses. And the conventional wisdom is no, pretty much, that you can't, you can't really make a dent in it. And most cattle guys don't care. They tend, the common ones tend not to be very good forage. So you wouldn't do it in order to increase forage. You have to do it for other reasons. There are a lot of public land managers who are very interested in bringing back the, the perennial grasses, but they don't have any cattle to run and don't have much control over what happens with the cattle when they lease that land out. So there's really kind of nobody who, or not many people, who are trying to make this change in the landscape. So that became one of our goals and it's part of our holistic goal for our landscape description and we decided it was one of the things that we would monitor and it seemed logical to possible to us that holistic planned grazing where we didn't continuously graze those perennial plants, the few that are there, might increase their number on the ranch. You discussed briefly and mentioned briefly your application of holistic management on this landscape and I wonder if you could talk about that in a little bit more detail. Tell us about how you became acquainted with holistic management and how that has influenced your management thinking and your management practice on the Picenus Ranch. Okay, I actually was first introduced to holistic management only two months after we bought the ranch, which was fortunate for me. Uh, the lady who previously owned this ranch, who had actually ended up selling it to developers, came to a branding here. I'd never been to a branding. I didn't know anything about cattle. I had sworn I was never going to own any cattle as long as I lived. I had no interest in it. She came to this branding. We sat down to have lunch after the branding. She said to me, there's this book you should read. If I had read this book, I would own this ranch now, not you. Like, okay, I'll bite. She told me what, what the book was. It turned out to be Alan Savory's book on holistic management. I bought the book. I read the book. It's like, I get this. I had no other paradigm for how to manage cattle on the land. This made complete sense to me as a longtime gardener and person who grew native uh, grasses. It all just made sense. So I'm like, well, isn't this obvious to everyone? That started me down my path of holistic management and learning what it was and how it might be applied on this landscape. And um, it was taken several years to get to the point where we've actually implemented the holistic planned grazing. I would say we implemented a lot of the parts of holistic management much earlier in, in the process, but the holistic planned grazing has taken longer for us. We've been doing that for about three years now. And the way we got trained is my ranch manager and I both attended the uh, ranch and range management class that HMI used to have. So that was a two-year class. We did four different intensives in the western United States. We did to, went to four different ranches. And that was really eye-opening for me, but my classmates used to tease me that I had an unfair advantage because I didn't know anything. So I didn't have to throw out any old paradigms. I could just swallow this paradigm whole and move on. So um, that's been a 10-year journey that Chris and I have been on together to try and figure out how to apply holistic management to this landscape. Well, you mentioned Chris, who's your land manager, your ranch manager, and he has had many years of experience uh, managing cattle. and he had maybe some more difficulties with that paradigm in the beginning, but he is really starting to see some of the benefits of managing cattle in that way. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, some of the struggles that he's had with holistic management, but also uh, some of the 
successes that he has had by learning how to manage holistically? Sure, I think it started out, he started out like many cattle guys do, sort of crossed arms, uh, kind of negative body language. I think I know how to manage cattle now. No one needs to tell me how to manage cattle differently. And it took several years to get past that. The first little inkling I had was that by the time we finished our ranch and range management class, we were in the airport on the way home, and he says to me, well, you know, I was sort of skeptical, but at this point, I wouldn't work on a ranch that wasn't managed holistically. So that's a, that, that, that was a good switch. Though it's still a bit of a climb to actually do, to put all these things in practice. And Chris has the disadvantage here in that he was brought up raising cattle he had certain ideas about how it should work and he also has to live in this community and there's a lot of people around as in most agricultural communities that think this is all uh, not particularly good idea and he's the guy out there in the world hearing that all the time he has the, so what he does now is he says well i work for this crazy lady and that i do what she tells me and so that kind of lets him fit into the ag world and make me look like a lunatic, which seems perfectly fine. <laughs> but at the same time, I think Chris is totally into it now. I mean, he's out counting perennial grasses with us, and he and I drive around the ranch talking about our management practices and our goals and looking at what we're trying to accomplish. And I think he's gotten intrigued by the whole idea that you can actually affect what happens on the landscape by the way you manage your cattle. I think he completely buys into that now. Uh, when the range science professors come and say, ah, oh, you can't change anything, he's like, well, that's just wrong. You are so wrong, because mm -hmm. we can see it happening here. So he was a guy who had to see it happen. And once he started to see it happen, he said, yes, I, this, this really does make a difference. So. Well, talk about a couple of things. Um, one, the importance of having a goal and working towards that goal, or a holistic goal, if you will and how that has affected your quality of life and your ranching operation and uh, many of the things that people often don't think about but are really a lot of the times why people get into this business or any other business. Um, but also talk about viewing things holistically and why that's important and how it has helped you to think about ecosystem management and, um, and your life on the land. Okay, well, that's a big question. But so, to me, the most important thing about holistic management is, in fact, the creation of your holistic goal. I think a lot of people don't sit down and figure out what they want to manage for, they, what they want in their lives. A lot of, we spend far too much time thinking about what we don't want, managing against things, and little time managing for things. And people go, ah, that's no, not true. But if you think about human nature, you know, we have the war on terror, the war on drugs. We always want to have war on something. <laughs> We, rather than saying, why don't we have a campaign to make something good happen? So I think that's the single most important thing about holistic management. I think that really coming up with your goal and meaning it, a meaningful goal is the it's 50 percent of, of the work to be done in holistic management and making that goal live for you and actually make decisions against that. So I think there's, it's really important. And we ha I have a personal holistic goal and we also have a ranch holistic goal that was created by all the people who work at the ranch. And we don't review that as often as we should, but we have reviewed it a couple of times. And we will talk about that. When we have management meetings, somebody will say, well, does this move us toward our holistic goal? And we'll, we'll discuss that question. So it's, it's an integral part of how we run the, the ranch. Though I do find that my employees love one part of the holistic goal best, which is the quality of life section. They're often in pointing out that some new expenditure is necessary because it will improve our quality of life. <laughs> So that's kind of become a standing joke. But, but I think it really is important in terms of quality of life in a much broader 
since. Uh, I also think that I personally probably managed the companies I ran before holistically too without knowing the name of them. We ran a software company and when people interviewed, we sort of told them what life was like at this software company and what our goals were, what we were trying to accomplish. And sort of said, and if this doesn't sound good to you, then you probably shouldn't come to work here. So we had a view of our company that kind of matched having a holistic goal without having the, the name for it. So I think I've always thought of the world that way. Um, certainly doesn't, but it, I think it really helps with decision making to make that goal explicit and to have the testing questions are very helpful in combination with the goal, which I didn't really have until I was introduced to holistic management. And it's much easier to talk to your employees when you have, when you have a framework. You're more sure that everybody is seeing the world in the same way than when you just sort of talk about it. If we, we have a piece of paper and we can talk through the elements of the holistic goal, it kind of gets us all on the same page and we can use that vocabulary, which has turned out to be helpful for us. Well, what about thinking about the actual ranching operation holistically? Um, there are so many elements and components to it. Many ranchers traditionally just think about how many pounds their cattle are putting on and they are very focused on that, oftentimes at the expense of so many other things that are happening in these natural environments. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, you've touched on that in the interview, but, but how is holistic thinking important for a land manager and why? Right, sure. I think to me it's absolutely crucial to think about managing land for your goal, which in our case is much broader than pounds per acre. I suppose it's perfectly valid for a rancher to care only about pounds per acre, but if he plans to stay there for a long time, he really needs to have a broader goal. That land needs to sustain him and his family for the next 50 or 100 years. So to think about pounds per acre probably doesn't, doesn't meet that test. And we think, we think much more broadly, uh, giving a lot of thought to biodiversity and what's happening out on the landscape and that it's moving in what we view as a positive direction, which is to have more diversity, to have more wildlife, to have more California perennial grasses. Our view is that if we can do more work and have the same pounds per acre, but be improving biodiversity or improving the water cycle, we have the, we have the river, we, we look at water cycle, that's as important to us as pounds per acre. Th those are all very important goals. And now it's, it's great that we're also now in the process of trying to leverage our biodiversity into an ecotourism effort. It's, it's always nice when those other parts of your range management can also help you become financially sustainable because that's certainly the, one of the big challenges in ranching is to, is to be financially sustainable. But I think that going forward, there are going to be more and more opportunities to use those other parts of the ecosystem to generate income and there are going to be more and more chances where if you're not managing the other parts of the ecosystem like the watershed correctly, you may have trouble even keeping your cattle operation going because you, you need to be able to show that you're managing your land for other purposes. You may think only pounds per acre but there's a lot more going on out here. And, and to me, the, the holistic model of the four ecosystem processes really helps to, th to think about all the aspects of the ecosystem rather than focusing on, like, I have a tendency to focus on the perennial grasses, right? But I need to think about the, the water cycle, which is tied up with the perennial grasses. But if you think about all four of the processes, it kind of forces you to take that broad view. Well. One of the conversations that we have had in our time here is, and you mentioned uh, Joel Salatin, who I'm sure many of the listeners are familiar with, and one of the things that Joel has realized is that there's just not enough people on the land 
in the United States. Um, now that is not the case everywhere in the world. Um, certainly many uh, developing countries ha in some cases have too many people on the land. But in North America, uh, there is certainly a scarcity of human um, inventiveness in many of these agricultural systems. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about coming to that realization and the implications of that realization. Sure. This is something I've come to realize only over the last couple of years. I would say for the first few years I was here, well, I was dealing with other things and hadn't, and hadn't realized... But now it's very clear to me that this ranch needs a lot more people. It needs a lot more human capital. Because there, there are a lot of enterprises that we could layer on this ranch that would be beneficial to the ranch, the local community, our customers in the Bay Area. There are so many things we could do. But we can't do it with the four or five of us who are here trying to run the ranch. So the, our trick now is to figure out how to re-people the ranch and how to get those enterprises launched. And I really don't know exactly how to do that. I know we were talking about the fact that Joel Salatin has been, I think, using interns and trying to come up with a model where interns spin off into enterprises. And we haven't gotten that far. We're still at the, ah, oh, we need more people. What kind of people do we need? What kind of enterprises could we layer here? I think it may come down to we're going to go out and look for people and then we'll figure out the enterprises. I think it's going to maybe turn out that the people are more important than the specific enterprise is. In, in this re-peopling effort. But I'd say we're very much at the beginning stages of that. And I think we could easily have 10 or 15 families here running enterprises and making a living over the next 25 years. Well, what type of enterprises would you imagine those people would run? So like, we could definitely imagine having a pork enterprise. We are talking about pastured poultry and particularly eggs. Uh, there's hunting. We, there are great possibilities there. Uh, we've talked with you about management of oak forests and how we might be able to turn those into potential uh, financially viable enterprises. Our ecotourism enterprise, we think, could, could become quite significant over time, and there are a number of different elements to that. So those are the ones we've thought about. Uh, I think they're... We, we have... You know, a lot of acres of leased-out row crop ground now. I would very much love, 25 years from now, for that row crop ground to be used by a number of smaller farmers who were maybe sharing marketing infrastructure and ranch infrastructure. And so I'd love to move away from that huge industrial agricultural model and get a lot more people working that land who are, who are living closer to the land. So it's all pretty vague at the moment, but we need more people. You're right. Do you think that... Part of what's holding that back, I mean, not just on the Picenus Ranch, but just generally around the country, part of what's making things difficult for people like Joel Salatin is we are in the beginning stages of this kind of massive social and economic transition where young people are finding it more difficult to get jobs and are kind of wondering what it is that, what, how their future is going to look. And maybe, um, well, necessity is the mother of invention. Um, do you foresee that perhaps as people need to think about these things and are forced to by circumstances that this will kind of develop organically? I'm optimistic that that could happen, but not at all confident that that's mm -hmm. going to happen. I think that that would be wonderful. I do think we seem to be moving into an era where young people are interested in doing these kind of enterprises and going back to working in agriculture and doing something that's meaningful to them and meaningful to their neighbors. I think we've just gone through a period of time when if you're a young, an up-and-coming young person who said, who wasn't already involved in farming or ranching, yeah. who said, I want to go back to the, go live on a farm 
basically the world tells you you were absolutely crazy. And maybe older people still do, but I think there's a growing number of young people who are saying just that. And I think they can make that happen. If we can figure out how to make that financially viable for them, if we can figure out how to build those markets. I mean, it, there are a lot of roadblocks in terms of getting, as we said, your products from the farm to the consumer. And when you start these on-farm on enterprises, you have to overcome those. So it's going to require a lot of initiative and creativity to make this work. But I have to say that we had our grazing workshop, and we had maybe 12 to 15 young people who were here, most of whom are not currently involved in agriculture but want to be. And it was very inspirational to talk to them because they really seemed to be pretty committed to this idea. So now those of us who are here and have the land and are already working in agriculture have to figure out some way to make that happen. And, and I hope it happens organically. For example, the Quivira Coalition uh, meeting in November, the theme is young agrarians. Mm. So the whole theme is built around how do we get young people back to working on the land. So there's some hope out there, and there are young people who do need work and want to do this kind of work. Well, will you be at the Quivira Coalition in November? Uh, yes, I will be there. Looking forward to it. Well, perhaps some of the people who consider themselves young agrarians out there might be able to go there and shake your hand. Uh, yes, I'd love to meet them. I think they could contribute. I think they're putting on a lot of the panels and discussions, and I would love to hear from all of them. I think we've got to work together to come up with this model. We don't, we don't have the model yet, so I hope they do come to Govira and meet other young agrarians and people like me who want to help with it. Well, Sally Calhoun, thank you very much for joining us today. and. Thank you for doing all that you do to manage these beautiful lands here in Central California the way that you do and for providing a model that other people can follow and, and for pushing forward to, to try to find new ways that we can um, make these things better and better and make our future better for ourselves and uh, for subsequent generations. Oh, you're welcome and thanks for helping us try and do all those things. That concludes my interview with Sally Calhoun, the owner and executive director of the Picenas Ranch. I'd like to once again thank Sally for joining me uh, for this episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast. That is pretty much all that I have for you for this episode of the podcast, so I will leave you by reminding you that this and all episodes of the Agro-Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. Also, I'd like to mention that uh, you can get online and purchase some grass-fed beef from the Picenas Ranch. And uh, we got a couple of ribeye steaks while we were out there and brought them home, and they were delicious. So uh, if you're looking for all organic grass-fed meat and looking to support someone that manages in a way that... Uh, most of the people who listen to this podcast would probably agree with and uh, want to encourage and support, then I encourage you to go check out uh, the Picenas Ranch website. I'll put a link to that on the show notes for this episode of the podcast. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.